Father in heaven, we have every reason to believe that you are going to meet with us here today. You've already ministered to us powerfully in the music, the prayers, and the incredible testimonies of the various projects that are taking place all around the world. Father, we ask now that as we meet here, that you would come not only into the walls of this large facility, but that you would come into the hearts of the individual people that are here. Father, speak to us by your Spirit. May the Spirit that inspired the text now become the Spirit that instructs in the text. Father, I'm praying that you will give me both clarity and charity, that I might communicate in a way that is similar to the way that Jesus might communicate were he here today in person. Father, we know that you and your Son, Jesus, are here by the Spirit, and so we're claiming the promise that you will send the Spirit of truth to guide us into all truth. Be with us now, challenge us, inspire us, rebuke us, and encourage us is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen and amen. All right, ASI, I want to begin by asking you what might sound like a really silly question, and it is purposefully provocative. The question is, is it good news that there is a God? I'd like to give you, I'd like you to give me a hearty amen if if your answer to that question is a yes. I'll ask it again. ASI, is it good news that there is a God? Okay. Well, like all Adventists that I have given this trap to around the world, you have fallen unwittingly and headlong into a trap that has been laid for you. Let me ask a question that will tease out the the trap. I think it might make it a little apparent how you have fallen into my, my linguistic trap. Ladies, is it good news that there is a husband? Now I hear giggles. I hear laughs. What is the answer to that question? Is it good news that there is a husband? Yeah, I, heard, I actually heard somebody say it, and it is the appropriate answer. The answer is, it depends. What two words did I say, everyone? It depends. It would depend on what, what, what word do you think I might say right here? It would depend on what kind of a husband. You will notice that I was purposefully ambiguous when I asked you the question, is it good news that there is a God? You all assumed, I think reasonably, but also mistakenly, that I was referring to the same God that's in your mind. In answer to the question, is it good news that there is a husband, would boil down to the question about the kind of husband we're describing, the character of that husband, the person that he was. We could ask similarly, is it good news that there is a neighbor? Not all neighbors are good news, but some neighbors are really, really, really good news. But I want to tell you this this morning. My sermon is titled, An Unusual God. And 99.999% of all of the gods of human history or of human invention are not good news. And so to automatically assume when I ask the question, is it good news that there is a God, to give me a rousing amen, I want to try and go to the text of Scripture to understand why it is that we are so persuaded that the God of Scripture is good news. Analytic uh, analytic philosopher and professor Alvin Plantinga, in an incredible book that was published by Oxford University Press titled Where the Conflict Lies, says these words, 
This display of overwhelming love, speaking of the gospel, the gospel of scripture, this display of overwhelming love is not only the greatest story ever told, it's the greatest story that ever could be told. I want to talk to you today about a God who is unusual. If you were to survey the various and sundry gods of human history and of human invention that have populated history, you would find that all of them except one are universally not good news. Enter into this thought experiment with me, if you would, momentarily. It's a thought experiment that I would imagine that most of you are actually conducting every day of your life, and it goes like this. Can you imagine better good news than if these two things were true? Just try and conceive of better good news than that these two things are true. Number one, there is a God. And number two, he looks like Jesus. Just allow your imagination to run as wild as you need it to be. Just try and conceive of better good news than that there is a God. Yes, we live in a theistic world, a theistic universe. But not just that there is a God in some general sense, but that that God looks like the Jesus of the Gospels. This is what leads Plantinga and others like him to say this story, the story of the Gospel, is not only the greatest story ever told, it's the greatest story that ever could be told. Come with me in your Bibles and we will be deep in Scripture this morning to the book of Romans. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1. Join me there if you would. Romans chapter 1. We're just going to make a couple quick notes in Romans chapter 1 on verses 16 and 17, and then we will spend the lion's share of our time in Romans chapter 3. So come with me to Romans chapter 1, just by way of setting up a context. Most scholars agree that Paul in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, gives us an advanced summary of everything he's going to talk about in the next 15 chapters. The book of Romans is 16 chapters, but here in chapter 1, in two verses, two verses that are so theologically dense so as to contain all of the various tentacles and narratives that Paul will unpack in incredible detail in chapters 2 to 16. Romans chapter 1, we're going to just read verses 16 and 17. I would hazard a guess that this will be a familiar passage of Scripture for many of you. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then verse 17, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Direct your attention to verse 17 again. Verses 16 and 17 hover around three basic ideas. All of them are contained textually in verse 17. He says, first of all, the righteousness of God, then secondly, is revealed in some faith transaction. Those are the three ideas. The righteousness of God somehow revealed or demonstrated or displayed. That's the very point that Plantinga makes. This is not only the greatest story ever told. This overwhelming display, display of love, is the greatest story that ever could be told. Paul is giving us an advanced summary here of everything he's going to talk about, and he wants us to know right up front that somehow in the gospel, the righteousness, the goodness, the character of God is encapsulated and revealed 
somehow through a faith transaction. We'll talk about the nature of that faith transaction. Paul then goes forward from Romans chapter 1 in his summary to describe the unqualified and universal brokenness of the Gentile world. In Romans chapter 2, Paul describes the unqualified and universal brokenness of the Jewish world so that when he arrives finally in Romans chapter 3, where we will spend our time this morning, he wants you to be absolutely clear that the human plight is universal and ubiquitous, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're going to pick it up in Romans chapter 3. Come with me to verse 9. As Paul is drawing the strings of his arguments in chapters 1 and 2 to a close, he begins by asking a question, what then? How should we think about these things that I have said, the, the case that I am marshalling? What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. There's the universality, the ubiquity of the human plight and the human condition, and he uses this phrase, it's a particularly pregnant and strong phrase, under sin. I know of only other I know of only other one place in the writings of Paul where this exact construction is used. It's in Galatians chapter 3 verse 22 where he says that scripture has concluded or confounded all under sin. Paul will then take us on a sort of rabbinical tour de force through many passages of the Old Testament mostly from Psalms but also from Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Isaiah to marshal his case. He has made a strong point about the universality of the human condition, the brokenness of that condition, and of a seemingly hopeless, helpless plight. And so he will here marshal his case from the law, from the Old Testament. We pick it up in verse 10. As it is written, notice before we read here, there will be two phrases I want you to hone in on. The first phrase is, there is none or there is no. You will find that construction five or six times depending on your translation. The second phrase is, no, not even one. So just pay attention to the refrain here, to this chorus. I'm in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul paints an undeniable an unflattering picture of the human plight here that he roughly divides up into three basic ideas. Number one is humanity's alienation from God. And in this particular category of sin, he, he picks up those threads that are found in Genesis chapters 1 to 11, the vertical alienation that mankind felt from God and they hid themselves from the trees amongst the, the garden but also the horizontal alienation on display in Genesis 4 and Genesis 11 where human society and human families were fragmented. And so Paul begins by saying, 
The plight of humanity is that they are fundamentally alienated from God. He then goes to his second sort of line of reasoning. The reason is that they have believed and they have spoken untruthful speech. Fascinatingly, in this passage, there are, there are hints, and, and not even particularly subtle hints, of Lucifer's own deception and misrepresentation of the character of God. Two references to snakes are made here. And so humanity is alienated from God, picking up the great theme of Genesis 3, not just because of the decisions that they have made or the actions that they have done, but because they have misapprehended what God is like. And then the third category of sin, Paul simply describes as rampant violence. So between alienation and untruthful, deceitful speech and violence, Paul paints an unqualified picture of the plight of humanity and says, everybody is in need. Nobody escapes. No, not even one. And if you're listening carefully, you can almost hear echoes of Revelation 4 and 5 here where John in that great throne room scene as the scroll is there on the throne of the Ancient of Days, he begins to weep because he says in apocalyptic vision, there was no one worthy to open the scroll. That language is on display here. There is none. There is none. There is none. Not even one, he says. So Paul then in verses 19 and 20 comes to what? He regards in his apostolic authority and his human observation as necessary conclusions. And it's right here that we come to what you might call a fold or a corner or a crease in the book of Romans. Paul has been arguing very strongly in a single direction the fallenness of the Gentile world, the fallenness of Israel, God's covenant people, the fallenness and brokenness of all of humanity. And we are just here at the crease or the turn where Paul is about ready to transition and to get into the passage that we're going to be spending our time on largely this morning. And so verses 19 and 20 are that crease, that fold or turn. Now we know that whatever Torah, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become, what does your Bible say? The whole world. The ubiquity and the universality of the human plight here, Paul has spelled it out in Scripture. He has spelled it out in chapters 1 and 2. And he says, the whole world is guilty before God. And then verse 20, we're right on the pointy end of that crease. Therefore, this is a summary statement. Paul has made his case in chapters 1 and 2 and half of chapter 3. And he says, therefore, this is the necessary, inescapable, required conclusion that I come to. Therefore, by the deeds of the Torah, the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight of God. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And if you spend a lot of time in the book of Romans, you get a sense that it's right at this point, on the corner, on the crease, where Paul takes a breath. He has made his case, and he, he almost invites, he almost provokes, he almost challenges us to, 
to refute that case, to try and make some case for human goodness or human faithfulness or human righteousness. No, Paul is convinced on the basis of the text. He's convinced on the basis of his own observation. He's convinced on the basis of history that all the world is guilty before God. And the necessary conclusion is that none can be innocent or justified in the sight of God by the works of Torah. And then, a key, crucial, pivotal, two-word phrase. Take a look at it in the text. The two-word phrase is, but now. Now, the word but, as you are probably aware, is a conjunction in the English language, but it's a conjunction unlike the word and, which just joins two ideas. I will have the pizza and the pasta. Right? And there's no change of direction, there's no reversal of direction. But the word but functions not just as a joining conjunction, but as a change or even as a reversal of direction. If you have applied for a job and you went in for the interview and you sent in your CV and filled out the application and a week or two after the interview you get a letter in the mail that says, Dear Sir, Dear Madam, thank you so much for coming in. It was a pleasure to meet you, to receive your resume and to sit down with you in the application process, but do you need to read the rest of the letter? Did you get the job? No, because that's the way the word but functions. Paul makes this incredible case about the universal and the ubiquitous nature of the human plight, human fallenness. There is not even one, he says. And then these two words, but now. Oh, this is going to get really good. The but now indicates a fantastic change of direction grammatically and theologically and Paul here is going to drive his point home. In fact, you would have to be, you'd have to be blind. You'd have to be worse than blind. You'd have, you'd, have to, you'd have to be dead to not see the point that Paul is going to drive at here. He's going to drive this point home. And the point is the very one that he made back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let me just remind you of it. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is revealed, everyone? What is revealed? The righteousness of God. And Paul is going to make this point in just six short verses. Not once, not twice, not three times, four times. Let's race through it. Verse 21, but now, in response, in answer to the fallenness, brokenness, and otherwise hopelessness of the human plight, but now, Paul has well and truly turned the theological corner, but now... The righteousness of God, apart from Torah, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's an almost verbatim revisitation of chapter 1, verse 17. The righteousness of God revealed, and he says the law and the prophets, and in verse 17 he quotes Habakkuk. No wonder scholars have told us that contained in those two verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is an advanced summary of everything that Paul is going to say. And Paul here, we're in the thick of it now. He says, but now, yes, there has been rampant violence and untrue speech. And yes, people have believed the lie about who God is and isn't. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from Torah, has been displayed. He's going from strength to strength. He's picking up a kind of momentum here. Verse 16, or excuse me, verse 22. Even, here it is a second time, the righteousness of God. You can't miss it. 
through the faith in Jesus. We'll come back to that in a moment. To all and on all who believe. That sounds just like Romans 1, 16 and 17. For there is no difference, not Jew, not Gentile. Verse 23, a familiar verse. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We will return to that momentarily. Whom God set forth, your translation, my translation says propitiation. The word is a mercy seat. Whom God set forth as the place of mercy to demonstrate His righteousness. There it is a third time. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now verse 26, our final verse in this passage, to demonstrate at the present time, a fourth time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. When Paul turns the corner... On the universal plight and the universal condition, he does so by making it so clear you cannot miss it. One, two, three, four times. He says, but the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of God has been displayed. Which is, of course, the very point he makes in Romans 1, 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Choose your word. Revealed, displayed, demonstrated, and we could ask Paul, Paul, where, when was the righteousness of God that so turns the human condition and the human plight, where and when was it demonstrated? And he gives us the answer in the text, when God set Jesus forth as the place of mercy. This is an unambiguous and unmistakable reference to the incarnation of Jesus in human flesh and especially to the cross event. I want to read this same passage in another translation that, that actually gets several nuances of the text in a better way in my perspective. But now, apart from the law, I'm picking it up in verse 21, walk back through the text with me, but this time perhaps just listening rather than reading. But now, apart from the law, the right-making of God has been disclosed. Ooh, let's just pause right there for a moment. The righteousness of God is being rendered by this uh, uh, translator, the right-making of God. When God makes things right, when He sets them in their proper order and orientation. But now, apart from the law, the right-making of God has been disclosed, witnessed by the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. The right-making of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And time does not allow me this morning to go in to the robust grammatical and theological case that can be built for translating this phrase in what's called the subjective genitive, not my faith in Christ, but the faithfulness of Christ. Trust me, the evidence is there. For there is no difference. All have missed the mark and lack the glory of God, but they have been set right freely by His grace through the liberation that is in Christ Jesus. Pause right there. My translation says, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Beloved, I want you to hear one thing, and if you get nothing else, I want you to get this point. You listen to me very carefully. According to Paul, according to the text of Scripture, the location of your redemption is in Christ Jesus. I want you to turn to the person right next to you and say, my redemption is located in Jesus Christ. Do it right now. My redemption 
is located in Jesus Christ. Now I want you to say to that person, your redemption is located in Jesus Christ. Go ahead and say it. There is no other place for our redemption, for our liberation to reside. Heaven forbid it cannot reside in us. Paul has already built his undeniable case that there's not even one righteous. There's not one that could stand before God innocent on the basis of Torah. So if we're going to have a rescue, if we're going to have a liberation, if we're going to have a salvation, if we're going to have a redemption, it must reside in some place external to us. And I'm happy to tell you here today that the place where your redemption resides is in the person of Jesus Christ. It gets better. God set him forth publicly as a means of reconciliation, here again, through the faithfulness of his bloody death. Ah! His bloody death. Again, an unambiguous reference to the cross event. And it is right at this point that we just press pause on Romans to which we will likely return in a moment. And I want you to come with me in your mind to a scene that you have probably familiarized yourself with in the past. Jesus has been scourged. Jesus has been mocked. Jesus has been arrested. And now he finds himself in John chapter 19 standing before Pilate. No doubt blood dripping down his body and he is silent. He is reflective. He is pensive. He is in full possession of the situation and he knows what is happening and he chooses in this moment of great uh, of a critical of a crucible moment of, of great significance. He elects to remain silent. Pilate is confused by his silence and he peppers Jesus with a couple questions. Do you not know who I am? Try to imagine in your mind's eye what Pilate sees before him. Pilate is a governor. He is a, a, a man of, of, of significance in the Roman uh, system. He has seen his fair share of ruffians and, and criminals and miscreants come before him. He knows with whom he is dealing, or so he thinks. And, and so... Rather than the sort of brazen and argumentative people that he sometimes gets in front of him, this guy is trying the kind of silent treatment. And, and, and Pilate wants to orient him to the dire situation in which he finds himself. And he says, excuse me, young man, this whole silent treatment thing is not going to work for me, and it's not going to work for you. Don't you know who I am? And then this line, that I have the power to crucify you. Now just at this point, I want to just say that the ease and the casualness with which we in the 21st century speak about the cross would be completely lost on a first century slave or a first century Jew or one of the have-nots of the Roman Empire. No, 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 no. The psychological oppression, the psychological shadow of the cross cannot be appreciated here in 2019 by the ASI audience or by any audience. Nah, you've never seen a person crucified. You've never seen dozens. You've never walked outside of your village, your hamlet, or the city gates to see dozens or perhaps hundreds of people lined up on crosses. 
You have never seen it and I have never seen it. And so we now glory in something that if you could transport back into time would be regarded as so strange, so incomprehensible. No wonder Paul would say when we go into various cities and villages and we preach a crucified Messiah, people think we're nuts. And so earlier this year I found my way to an essay by a fellow named L.L. Wellborn The essay is titled, Extraction from the Mortal Sight. And here, perhaps more than any other author I've become exposed to, he gives us a window into the cultural significance of the cross and the way the cross would have been perceived in those days. Wellborn writes, In speaking about the ubiquity of the cross, I do not have in mind the occasional use of crucifixion as the supreme penalty in notorious cases of high treason, nor the more frequent use of crucifixion as a means of suppressing rebellious subjects in the provinces, but rather I have in mind the regular employment of the cross as a punishment for slaves in cities throughout the Roman Empire. Just outside the Esquiline Gate at Rome on the road to Tiber was a horrific place where crosses were routinely set up for the punishment of slaves. There, a torture and execution service was operated by a group of funeral contractors who were open to business from private citizens and public authorities alike. Indeed, the cross was not only the ominous specter around which the consciousness of the slave cringed, but because the cross was the evil instrument by which the legal institution of slavery was maintained, this extracted the surplus upon which the power of the ruling class depended. The cross may be regarded as the dark gravitational center which, whether recognized or repressed, allotted places to all of those who lived within the social symbolic edifice of the Roman Empire. The cross was an instrument of cruelty. It was designed not for the purposes of death. Killing a person is very easy. You put a knife or a spear or a sword through them. The cross is about control. The cross is about humiliation. The cross is about keeping people in line. And if you were a slave or one of the many have-nots in the Roman Empire, you would have been familiar experientially with what it is to see a person a human, a body, a brother, a mother, a son, nailed to a piece of wood, and it would have said to you, stay in line or else. And so it is right at this point that Jesus is standing before Pilate and electing for a strategy of silence, and Pilate says, young man, I don't think you understand the the gravity of the situation in which you find yourself. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have the power to crucify you? And even at the word crucify, others in the audience chamber might have, ooh, drawn back. Pilate has pulled out the big guns. The threat of crucifixion. Jesus is not a Roman citizen. He is eligible for crucifixion. And it's right here where Jesus recalibrates, no better, reorients Pilate to what's really happening in that audience chamber. Pilate has said, don't you know who I am? And it's as if Jesus says, sir, it would be more important for you to know who I am. You would have no power at all, he says in verse 11, if it not, had not been granted to you by my Father and I in heaven. A total reorientation of the nature of power, the nature of control. Jesus had said in John chapter 10, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down myself. 
When Peter thought that he was coming bravely and courageously to the rescue of Jesus in the garden there, Jesus said, put your sword away. Don't you think I could be delivered if I wanted? My father could send legions of angels. No, Pilate, it's not me who doesn't know who you are. It's you who don't know who I am. Something about the cross event and the horror and the terror of the cross event says Paul demonstrates that this is an unusual God. 99.999% of all gods of human history or human invention are not good news. But what is this God doing, going willingly, voluntarily, even almost enthusiastically to a cross? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's being himself. He is displaying who and what God is, not in his nature and ontology, but in his character. Wellborn continues on this very line. Christ shared the fate. Listen to this language. It is purposefully provocative. It is purposefully absurd. Christ shared the fate of a piece of human garbage. One of those whom life had demolished and who had touched the very bottom, even now if they lived in the shadow of the cross and died a bit every day upon seeing the cross, even if the cross should be their tomb as it was of their fathers and grandfathers, its power over them was now broken and undone so that they could live on with value and meaning and hope and love because the one who had died in this contemptible way was the anointed of God. Friends, this is an unusual God and I've got, I've got, a, I've got a breaking news piece of information for you here today, ASI. We are not the heroes of this story. Our churches are not the heroes of this story. Our institutions are not the hero of this story. Our longevity is not the heroes of this story. We are in no way, shape, or form the heroes of the gospel story. Jesus is the hero of the gospel story. And he's not just any God. He's not just some God. He is the one true creator God, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, who went voluntarily, willingly, and again, almost even enthusiastically to a Roman instrument of humiliation, coercion, and control to demonstrate not your righteousness, but to demonstrate God's righteousness. The law does not exonerate the sinner. The law exposes the sin and exonerates the Savior. No wonder Ellen White said, ah, no wonder Ellen White said, Sixth Bible Commentary 1113, this statement is my all-time favorite statement from the voluminous pen of Ellen White, and it has become like a piece of furniture in the intellectual landscape of my life. I cannot get away from it. Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. Christ was the good news. Then she says, now we have a message. Oh, now we have a message? Oh, yes, now we have a message. What is our message? Hanging upon the cross, Christ was the gospel. The righteousness of God is our message. The faithfulness of God is our message. 
We sometimes kid ourselves, as Jared alluded to last night, into telling the story in such a way that we persuade ourselves that we are the heroes in some way, shape, or form of this story. We are not. Jesus is the only hero of this story. He alone was found worthy to open the scroll and to purchase permanently humanity back from its plight of condemnation and sin and death. She continues, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Will not our church members keep their eyes fixed on a crucified and risen Savior in whom their hopes of eternal life are centered? This is our message. This is our argument. This is our doctrine, our hope for every believer. If we can awaken an interest in men's minds that will cause them to fix their eyes on Christ, we may step aside and ask them only to continue to fix their eyes upon the Lamb of God. Friends, the God that we have to preach and the God that we have to save and the God that we have to make famous in the world is no ordinary God. He is an unusual God. History is filled with stories of men who thought in some moment of grandeur or absurdity that they could become God. But history has only a single story of a God, the one true God, Yahweh, who became a man. And he didn't just become a man in any ordinary sense. He went voluntarily, willingly to a Roman instrument of torture where pieces of human garbage were thrown out as an instrument of control and of manipulation. And Jesus said, you have not put me here, Pilate. I am here voluntarily. I am here displaying, promoting, saving, even recovering what had been lost. The great truth about the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. Friends, the righteousness of God is seen in the faithfulness of Jesus. And your response to that faithfulness is great. It's awesome. Your life is going to be better. But there is never a point at which your response to God's saving faithfulness becomes the ground upon which you stand before Him. Now you stand before God, justified, as Paul says in Romans 3, innocent as if you had never sinned, because Jesus has done the unthinkable, the uninventable, No wonder Bruce Shelley said in the opening sentence of his incredible book, Christianity is the only major world religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. I recommend to you today and I commend to you today Jesus. And as Jennifer sings, I want to just share with you a line from this song. And I would give my final breath I am sure that Paul would do that. And I am sure that Jesus did that. I want to not only sing this and say amen to this, I want to believe that I would give my final breath to know Him in His death and resurrection. Oh, I want to know Him more. Any others out there with the raising of the hand say, Lord, I want to know you more. Perhaps even if circumstances should require it, to give my final breath to know you in your death and in your resurrection.
You are not an ordinary God. You are an unusual God. You are an extraordinary God. You are the one true God who gave up everything for us. And today we respond to that. We receive that. We accept that. And we say, Oh God, we want to know you more. And we want others around us to know you more. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Thank you, Jennifer. Father in heaven, even the glorious, beautiful, incredible voice of Jennifer and the sound of this piano, even these that move our soul to the depths, Father, even these only come within a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of the fullness of your goodness and glory. Father, today, truly in music and in testimony and in the text, we have basked in your goodness. Father, reorient us redirect us and recalibrate us, not just annually at conventions like ASI, and not just weekly at church services around the world. And Father, not even just every day when we have our morning time with you, but Father, at every moment, at every breath, may we be oriented to you and to your goodness and to just how unbelievably good news it is. Not only that there is a God, but that He looks like Jesus. Father, today we have tried to gain even just a small glimpse of the grandeur of that glory. And we want to say thank you. We want to respond and say, turn us by your power and by your grace into the best versions of ourselves, into those who not only know the righteousness of God, but those who show the righteousness of God. Help us to that end and to that effect by the infilling of your Spirit is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, this media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.